Amen. Someone once said, marriage, marriage is made in heaven. And someone else said, so is lightning and thunder. You get the idea. There's great blessings with marriage, but because two people are drawn together in such intimacy, especially when those two people are sinners, there's going to be some friction. But it's not just related to marriages, is it? We, we know statistics, sad statistics that a lot of marriages fail because of these things. But it's not related just to marriage. It's in our families. It's inter-sibling rivalry. Remember the first two brothers, one killed another. So it's been there. The, the problem is innate. The problem isn't your parenting. The problem is sin. But it's not just limited to our families either. You've got work relationships. You've got some people that are hard to get along with. Maybe your coworkers look at you as hard to get along with. Right? Then, then you've got just in the, in the community, you've got people that you're driving to work and they cut you off. You can't speak to them, but you wish you could. Right? <laughs> then, then add on top of that, you've got the church. Right? And the church is very different from a club. At least it better be. So I think I've used this illustration before. If you're in the Jeep club, everybody loves Jeeps. You're there because you love Jeeps of one flavor or another. Right? But when the church comes together, because Christ is that commonality, you have a lot of different people that come together with very different personalities in all walks of life and all sorts of education levels. And some of you were saved when you were very young. And some of you were saved when you're older. And you're, you're just coming at, at community, doing life together from all different venues and perspectives. So I mention this to say that conflict is inevitable. And conflict can be something as small as a small disagreement over the color of a chair. Or it could be something much more profound when someone sins against you. It's not a matter of if we will have conflict. It's when we will have conflict. Right? That's what, kind of what James said. You know, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. So it's coming. And maybe it's already upon us. Depending on what's going on in your family and life. So we cannot use the world's ways of dealing with these things. What's the world's ways? You do the cold shoulder. You give them the silent treatment. Or you seek to get revenge. You pout and don't talk to them until they come talk to you. Or you try to bury it. And you just try to like ignore it. Or if it's something within the family and you can't like get away from the person and you can't avoid them. Then what you're doing is you're just every time that topic comes up, you're changing the topic. Immediately changing topic. All these various ways. Oh, I'll add one more modern one. Posting to social media. Right? You can't work something out. So you, you go, you just blast uh, your conflict. You blast the other person or the organization or whatever you're going, you blast it on social media. Right? That's not walking in the spirit. That's included as slander. It's, it's one of the deeds of the flesh. These, these ways of dealing with conflict are all deeds of the flesh. Right? They're not authorized by the word of God. So we've got to learn 
ways of dealing with conflict, of resolving these things, with helping each other with sin or helping each other with, with doctrinal error in a way that glorifies God and is beneficial to those relationships, strengthens those relationships. And, and God's word gives us the light we need to show us the path we need to walk in these areas. Is it easy? Absolutely not. And I wish I could just teach this and all of us, myself included, could we just apply it. You know, it's just it's just like there. You know, you're just like a, a computer. You know, you got the input. Now just just do it. But the problem is putting it into practice. That's that's hard, right? It's one thing to to say it, one thing to read it in a book or hear it in a sermon. Something else to put it into practice. So one of the things in this message that I really want to do is is for you to think about your situation and apply it to you. You know, we've looked at uh, conflicts within. Uh, business relationships within the church, within families. But think about your family, your marriage, your work situation. Think about how to apply these things right where you are. And, and this morning, I want to give a, kind of a capstone message to, to really encourage us to be peacemakers. And, and to be a peacemaker, we've got to have a mindset of a peacemaker and we also have to have the skill set of a peacemaker. What I'm, what I'm trying to bring together here is it's not just information and, and a certain way of thinking, but it's also a certain practice that, that you have to learn. You know, if you're a, a skilled carpenter, you're a master craftsman, and you're training someone else, you can show them what to do. But they're not going to become a master craftsman themselves unless they're doing what? They're, they're like putting it into practice, right? To use a different analogy, I mean, you could show someone how to throw a football in a game, but unless you actually do it, you're not going to be any good at doing it yourself in, in, in a game. And life that we live is, is not a game. It's serious. If we don't handle these things properly, then it can destroy marriages, friendships. Sometimes brothers and sisters don't talk to each other for two or three decades over things like this. So we, we want to handle these things for the, for the glory of God and so this morning, I'm going to present to you six characteristics that, that we must have to be peacemakers that God calls us to be. It's going to be five mindsets, one skill set, right? right? Five mindsets, one skill set. And the first one of these is that we must have a kingdom mindset. To be a peacemaker, you must have a kingdom mindset. And, and you can open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, 9 to start with. We're going to be in various texts this morning. But in Matthew 5, 9, a Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus says this as one of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What, what is peace? We can just back up before we talk about a peacemaker. What is peace? Most people would define it as an absence of war or an absence of conflict. But the term is much richer than just an absence of conflict or an absence of aggravation towards one another. The the term has positive traits. Alexander Strzok points out three of these. He says contentment, security, and prosperity. Contentment, security, and prosperity. Ultimately, these flow from the Lord, right? You could say in one sense, peace is, is having God 
where in that beneficial positive relationship where everything is being supplied and your absolute trust is in him. You're not worried. You're not at conflict. So it does include the idea of not being at conflict, but it's much richer than that. And uh, Pastor MacArthur explains that that right that uh, sorry, peace is the presence of righteousness. Peace is the present of righteousness. That may be a new a new thought for you. That might, might surprise you. But listen to how he justifies that that claim. He says only righteousness can produce the re- the relationship that brings two parties together. Men can stop fighting without righteousness, but they cannot live peaceably without righteousness. Righteousness not only puts an end to harm, but it administers the healing of love. God's peace not only stops war but replaces it with the righteousness that brings harmony and true well-being. Peace is a creative, aggressive force for goodness. Unquote. So the idea being that, that we need to think about being a peacemaker is not simply to get pe- two people from stop fighting, but to have righteousness within that relationship. Right? And that's the positive side. Yes, the fighting needs to stop. But we need that positive side of peace of of bringing in righteousness into that relationship. So with with that in mind, what what is a peacemaker? Well, somebody who brings peace, but again, not just the absence of war or absence of conflict, but one who is bringing in a, a righteousness in the relationship so that relationship can be reconciled. And, and here we're keeping it very broad. It could be a, a, a literal argument or it could be that you see your brother, sister in sin and now you've gone to them, right? Like we've talked about from Matthew 18. So a peacemaker is one who brings righteousness into a situation to bring about reconciliation for the glory of God and, and for the good of, of people. Who can be a peacemaker? Right? When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, who are, who are the peacemakers? Well, I tell you, they're certainly not the politicians that 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 negotiate uh, the kind of treaties that so often are broken. That is, it is one form of peacemaking, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not commending politicians who make all sorts of, of political compromises in order to to have a ceasefire or something like that. Jesus is talking about something much more profound. And the interesting thing is, do you know that that God Himself is a peacemaker? Now we hear about God as a righteous judge, and He is. We hear about that God's going to judge sin, and he will. Right? He's, he's ho- a holy God, so he's, he's going to do those things. But do you know that he is often called the God of peace? Just, just listen a minute. Romans fifteen twenty two. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Then in Romans sixteen twenty, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Philippians 4, 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and see to me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First Thessalonians five twenty three. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Hebrews thirteen twenty. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
So God is a God of peace. But then add on top of that, that the son is prophesied in Isaiah to be what? The prince of peace. And the New Testament in Galatians, um, I'm sorry, in uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3.16 calls Jesus the Lord of peace. Okay? So he's not just the prince of peace. He is the Lord of peace, the master of peace. And what's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Peace. You see, God is a God of peace. Okay? He is known that. He is known as that. He has revealed himself to that. He, in fact, he is the author of peace. Is another way to say that. So it stands that if we're going to be peacemakers, we've got to know the one from whom peace flows from, and that is God himself. Someone cannot be a true peacemaker in the sense that Jesus talks about unless, he, unless that person knows the God of peace in a, in a personal way. That is, a, they have a saving relationship with him. The Holy Spirit lives within them. They know something firsthand of peace. They've experienced the peace of God. And now they're, they're living that out and, and being an ambassador to, to the Lord God of that peace. Firsthand, they can speak of the peace of God which surpasses comprehension and, and all the kind of circumstances that, that we find ourselves in. You know, and we can do that. We can be that, that kind of outreach for God because of what God has done for us. You know, Paul instructs the Corinthians in Romans 5.1. He says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So speaking just there of, of the peace that each individual Christian has with God. Because our sins are taken care of. God's no longer angry at us because of our sin. We, he supplies us with everything we need. He has provided the righteousness that is needed in order to bring two parties together. Not just, not just stop being angry with us, but to love us right? so much as his adopted children. That's God's righteousness. And that's a, a model for us to follow. But it is only those who have that peace who can be real peacemakers. But I would, I would even go further. Not only can we be peacemakers, we must be peacemakers. In, in 2 Corinthians 5, you can turn there if you like. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to, to 21. There we see the Apostle Paul give the church the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 21. There Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So you're reading that passage, what do you think the theme is? It's not hard, it's not hard to guess, right? You see the repeated word, the repeated theme, reconciliation, the God of reconciliation. He overlooked all your offenses against him and to reconcile you to himself. And now he has given you the ministry of reconciliation to go do that for others. And, he, and Paul continues, so then we are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. <clears throat> He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Paul gives us a nice summary of, of the gospel, of the message we're to carry out. It's that, it's that great exchange that Christ died in our place, that our sins were put on him. He died in our place. And upon faith, his righteousness is granted to us in Christ. Okay? 
the message of reconciliation. We are all to do that. This isn't just for pastors and missionaries and evangelists. This is speaking. This is applied to each person within the church. You are called to be a peacemaker. Now, for a moment, I want to to pause and and just speak to, to two different groups of people. First, to the unbeliever. God is at war with you. And you might think that you're not at war with God right now. I'm speaking to the unbeliever who is religious, not to the pagan who's throwing his fist up at God and angry at him. You might not consider that you are at war with God. But you have been from childhood. You were you were born in sin because you inherited uh, a sinful nature from your parents who inherited it from theirs. And we can chase that all the way back to Adam and Eve. You are a sinner by birth. And you're a sinner by choice. And you might say, well, it's, that's, that's not fair. It's the reality of the situation. My parents, your parents, ultimately Adam and Eve, made a decision to disobey God. And it has rippled through generations, through generations, through generations and will continue as long as the earth continues in its present form. That's the reality. You might say it's not fair, right? From a human perspective, yes, you can say that it's not fair. But God's done something better than just simply ignoring your desperate situation. He's provided a remedy. But before we talk about the remedy, just think about the situation of the unbeliever who is not at peace with God. So if you die in your sins today, God is going to hold you accountable for your sins. You're going to appear before him as the judge. And by the way, when you think of the judge, don't think of the God of the Old Testament, who people kind of uh, compartmentalize the Old and New Testament sometimes. So they think about the angry God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament. Well, the loving God of the New Testament is going to judge you. And he's going to judge you for your sin. Jesus himself will judge sins. That's what the scriptures say. And if he judges you for your sins and you've not, you've not had faith in Jesus Christ, then you're going to be held liable for your sins. The verdict on you will easily be guilty. You won't even fight it because you'll know that. And the sentence for that guilty verdict is eternity in hell. Very unpopular subject, but it's the reality of what the scriptures speak of. An eternal conscience punishment for your sin. Again, you might say, well, that's not fair. A lifetime of punishment for maybe 60 years of sin. But you look at it all wrong. You don't see that there's a a high lifted one, a high holy one. That even a small sin against such a, a high and holy God is worthy of an eternity of sin. And then you fail to neglect that it's not 60 years of sin. It's an eternity of sin. Because the unbelievers in hell never want to repent. They always want to rebel against God. They're always going to be punished. There's, there's just no turning around. It's not that God doesn't offer second chances. God offers many. You know, when Jesus said, when your brother um, repents of a sin, forgive him how many times? Seven. Seventy times seven. Well, God is more forgiving than that. He has given you more than 70 times seven chances to repent. He's gracious. He's loving. So my 
the reason I'm speaking to unbelievers at the moment is because you are in danger of just completely neglecting the great mercy of God. If you're hearing my voice, you're hearing the message of God, you're hearing my voice, but you're ultimately, I'm an ambassador for God pleading with you to, to, to come to Christ, to be reconciled to God on his behalf. And if you do not turn from your sins and believe in Christ, you will be held even more responsible for having neglected the message today. Do not neglect it. We have a merciful God who is longing to be reconciled with you and calls you to have faith in him. Trust that Christ is your Lord who died on the cross for your sins. And if you believe, even today, today will be the day of your salvation. You can experience the peace that, that we've been talking about, that peace with God and able to be a peacemaker with others. Today, won't you be reconciled with your God today? I want to speak to another group, and that is to the disobedient Christian. And here I'm, I'm speaking of those of you who are not known as peacemakers. You might be known as peace breakers. You might be the agitated one, the, the agitator in the group at work and your family. You're always picking at people, picking on people. You're nitpicky with everybody except yourself. But you, have, you leave a trail of broken relationships around you why are you not being a peacemaker why after experiencing the peace of god are you continuing a pattern of 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 peace breaking being an agitator not not pursuing reconciliation with others and, and on behalf of god i i beg of you to prayerfully and humbly ask yourself the some diagnostic questions why am I not pursuing peacemaking? Is it because that I've let the cares and concerns of this world so, so cloud out my vision of, of the kingdom of God that, that I can only see in the here and now and the, and, and the fight's right here. And that's all you can see. It's all you're focused on. You've allowed the, the cares and concerns of the world to choke out your zeal and love for God and for the kingdom of God. Have are you not pursuing peace because you just become too occupied with the pleasures of this world? And I'm not talking about sinful pleasures, but, but they're, they're, whether they're hobbies or just you're a sports enthusiast or you just love your work, whatever it is, it's just crowding out the, the kingdom of God. And so you're just, the idea of being a peacemaker just doesn't even pop up on your, your radar at all. Or are you not pursuing peacemaking because you just let your love for the Lord Jesus grow cold? Now, there could be other reasons too. Whatever the reason, search your heart. Wherever and whenever the Holy Spirit convicts you of not being a, pre a peacemaker, repent. And, and we're promised good news. God is forgiving. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That means to cleanse you from not being a peacemaker. And, and he will help you to be a peacemaker because that's his, that's his will. We don't have to debate that. It's declared in Scripture. He wants you to be a peacemaker. If, if you do not be a, become a peacemaker, uh, the peacemaker that God intends you to be, then, then because you are the Lord's child, he will discipline you through the process until you become that. 
Or if you're hard-headed enough, he might just completely end your life like, he, like we have evidence of in 1 Corinthians 11 that he'll just take you home to heaven early. Right? You want to honor God. I believe that or you wouldn't, you wouldn't be here this morning or you wouldn't be listening to the message later. Right? So become a peacemaker. Repent of not, of not being a peacemaker. And, and know, know how God can use you to be such a blessing to others by being a peacemaker. And you know what? There's great joy even in your own life that comes from knowing that God is using you. That God is working in you. That, that you are glorifying God by being a peacemaker. At, at making those efforts. You know, we, we can't create the peace. But we know the one who can. So that's why scripture says, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So, so far as it depends upon you, you be the peacemaker. Now, back to the idea of having a kingdom mindset. We must have a kingdom mindset to be a peacemaker. Because a, a kingdom mindset puts the Lord's kingdom first. I mean, seek first the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and God will provide all the other things. But with, we just need to understand that in the Lord's kingdom, he values peacemaking like our modern world values gold, right? right? So when there's a, a, a gold, we find a, a, through radar or searching, we find a strike of gold or a vein of gold. There's great effort and expense, uh, you know, that we go to, to to dig it out of the ground. So look at peacemaking as, as one of the forms of God's gold. It's, it's something he values as much as we value gold. And, and search for it and try to be that. Our Lord is a peacemaker and he wants you to be a peacemaker. But a kingdom mindset is needed also because our world doesn't value peacemaking. You know, if you talk about being a peacemaker, someone who forgives others, you're going to be seen as weak. Right? And, and that, is, that goes all the way back to uh, the pagans. I mean, it's a, it's a pagan idea that we would uh, not pursue peace or that we'd be weak in pursuing peace. You know, our Lord has never been accused of being weak. And he isn't weak. And yet he's the one that's, that's forgiven so much. He's forgiven more than anybody else. And he's created more peace than anyone else. And you could not have a stronger God. Right? So realize that, that our God has these perfect characteristics of great strength, great authority. And yet he's forgiving He's merciful. He's loving. So reject the, the culture's idea that, that being forgiving is weak. I mean, our culture popularizes the vengeful. If you think about it, you know, some guy gets wronged by somebody else or his family gets killed. And what does he do? He just goes after him, right? Those are the blockbuster movies. You know, you're talking about Die Hard or Rambo. It's those guys who just go like, take out like, you know, 10 of them got killed. Excuse me, so he's going to go kill a hundred or a thousand. That's, that's not who we need to value as Christians. We need to value those who are actually making peace and pursue that ourselves. So we must have a kingdom mindset. Can't think like the world. We have to think like our Lord's kingdom. So the second characteristic that, that we've got to, to um, uh, pursue or put on, and, and that's a farmer's mindset. So you've got this kingdom mindset but I want you to have also a farmer's mindset. And here I'd like you to turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. 
And particularly, I'm reading verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without grumbling, sorry, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice that last phrase. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It seems that James is thinking like a farmer here. He's talking about something sown and then something reaped or harvested afterwards. But instead of like harvesting rye or wheat that would have been planted by literal farmers, here James is thinking about righteousness. He's thinking about peace and and harvesting that. Uh, Righteousness won't grow in, in the toxic sound of uh, in the, sorry, the toxic ground of sinful relationships. You, you know how if you're going to grow something, sometimes <clears throat> sometimes you have to test the soil. Like if something's not growing well and just repeatedly season after season is just not growing well, you ought to test the soil to see what's what's there. There could be some ingredient, some some um, uh, nutrient within the soil that that needs to be added in order for things to grow. So righteousness. And peace aren't going to grow in, in soil that's, that's contaminated, that's toxic, that, uh, in conflict. Being, being a peacemaker is, is like, like tilling the soil. It's preparing the ground to receive the seed and bear much fruit. So it, when there is that, that, that conflict, we ask the Lord to, to help us to change the soil of the ground. Right? That is changing the heart. And that's hard work. Ultimately, it's only the work the Spirit can do, but He often uses you because you're His ambassadors. So He's using you to bring His Word to bear on people's lives. And and that is a process that is slow, like a farmer's process. And that's what I want you to, to, to think about. You know, like a farmer who plants, prepares, prepares the ground, he plants. And in, in, cases, in some cases, they, they're weeding. They're taking care of that so that the crop can come, but they have to wait. They have to wait for the harvest before they they know they have anything. And there's really two aspects here. It's the waiting, but it's also the waiting with dependency upon God. You know, a farmer can do all the right things, put the seed in the ground, prepare the soil, put the seed in the ground, put the fertilizers on it in order to make sure the soil is proper for that particular plant. To a certain extent, he can even water it. But can he cause the growth? No, no, he can't. God has to cause the growth. And God has to bring the harvest. And God has to protect the crop. And there's just so many things in which the farmer, whether he realizes it or not, is dependent upon God. So when we think about peacemaking, think about it as something that's a longer-term process in most cases. And it's a process where we're totally dependent upon our Lord and our God. If you do any gardening at all, you know this. You know you've got to plan ahead. You know, I heard on the radio this week, you know, if you're going to start a garden, now's the time to start those seedlings. You, know, you start them now, the ones that need to be started indoors, that is. Right? So you start them now right? so that you can get a crop in, in, you know, in the summer, sometime in the summer and not in the fall if we start too late. But, but that's the idea. It's a long, long-term process. Right? So when the Lord providentially provides you an opportunity to, to go help a brother or sister with a, with a particular sin or or uh, an issue or a conflict comes up, some offense comes up. Maybe it's not a full-blown conflict, but you're just, 
there's some, you, you think that somebody else has an offense against you, something against you, you go. And you work diligently. You, you, you be patient. You wait. You wait upon the Lord and you pray for Him to effect change. And, and I'll assure you this, just as sure as each of us are benefit from the fact that we have farmers out there. Farmers put food on the table, right? and they do that because they're patients. In the same way that if you are a peacemaker and you're sowing the seeds of righteousness, you're sowing the seeds of peace, there will be a sweet harvest. You may not see it right away. You may not see it in the, in the long term, even, even the long, long term. You will. The Lord will reward that. Even in cases where you can't change it, there's conflict, you've done everything you can do. The Lord is going to allow you to, to bear much fruit from that for his sake, even, on, even, in, even in your own life. Peacemaking produces healthy, sanctified lives, healthy, sanctified churches. So to be a peacemaker, you must have an eternal mindset, a farmer's mindset. A third characteristic of a peacemaker is that you must have a slave's mindset. You must have a slave's mindset. Let me explain what I mean. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your Lord. What does the word Lord mean? It means master. So if Jesus is your Lord, by, by simple logic, that makes you his slave. And some would, would kind of shy away from the word slave and maybe say servant. But the scriptures actually say slave. Right? You are a servant too, but a slave. Right? God is a loving God. He's a loving master. But the point here is that you are a slave to our loving God. So if he tells you to do something, what should you do? Do it. And here I just want to bring to you a kind of a staccato of verses. We're not going to take slow down to, to explain them all, but a staccato of verses to help you see the overall impression. See how many shots, you know, the Lord fires at you so that you would get this. All right? Listen, Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but the salt becomes, if the salt becomes unsalty, then what, what, sorry, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Romans twelve eighteen, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. Finally, brothers, rejoice, be restored, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Colossians three fifteen. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. First Thessalonians 5.13 Live in peace with one another. Second Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord Jesus, on the Lord from a pure heart. Hebrews 2.12.14 Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Notice how in that passage he's tying it together with sanctification. So if you're not a peacemaker, that should give you an indication of how sanctified you are. You're not as mature as you think you are. Because the more mature in Christ you're going to be, the more of a peacemaker you're going to be. And and on top of this, I want to add a passage from, from Peter 3. You could turn there if you like. Peter 3, 1 Peter 3. Verses 8 to 11. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. 
For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Look, must. This is an optional. Must. Not my words. It's the Lord's words. This is something that we must do. Think about what we read this morning from, from Matthew 8. You had a centurion. And a centurion came to Jesus. And he knows he addresses him as Lord. And he, he's begging on behalf of a servant that he must have loved very much. And that servant was, was sick. He was crippled. We don't know exactly what was going on. He, um, he was tormented. So very painful. That centurion could have written him off. He could have gotten another servant, let that servant go, but he, he chose not to. He went to our Lord and he, he asked Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, sure, I'll come. But that centurion was a God-fearing centurion. We know that because he doesn't want Jesus to come into his house. He recognizes that he's a sinner. He recognizes that Jesus is holy and righteous. And he, he says, I'm not worthy for you to come even come to my house. Look, I get it. I called you Lord, and that wasn't just a tear, term of endearment. It wasn't something meant to manipulate you. I know you're Lord. And because of that, I know that you can just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And he uses the analogy. He says, like, I'm a, I'm a man under authority. I tell a soldier to do this. He does it. I tell a slave to do it, to do something. He does it. And what was Jesus' words? He's like, such faith. As a rebuke to Israel. But such faith. He saw Jesus as the Lord. If, if Jesus just said it, he, it, would, it would happen. And actually that chapter is filled with examples like that. Where Jesus just said it. And, it, and it's all filled with the uh, examples of how much authority Jesus has. Over the wind, over the waves, over the demons, over diseases. And dare you not listen to him? Think about that. The wind and the waves listen. The diseases listen. Even, even Jesus' enemies, the demons listen. But the people of God don't listen. Like that, that should rebuke us all. Because we've been guilty, all been guilty of disobeying his word. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God, God loves us to, to, to just hold back on judgment that we deserve so he could send his son to die for us. And, and forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and now you have people today that say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't have to listen to him. Are you kidding me? I mean, we kind of laugh at that. I do, too. But it's like, what an affront to our Lord that you would, you would say that you're a Christian, but then say it's okay to live in sin? It's okay not to be a peacemaker, applying it to the, the message today? No, no. And that, that, that story with the, with the centurion, that, that wasn't a parable. That was real. That's real history. Right? I believe that you'll be able to meet that centurion in heaven someday and ask him what that was like. What, what, what did God do in his life before that to help him have that kind of faith? But the important part that Jesus says, he, it, that whole example I want to go back to because I missed it, is, is that Jesus says, what great 
faith. We all want to have great faith. But the faith was in Christ. And the centurion knew his faith was in Christ. And he knew that Christ, whatever he said, that that the the demons, the diseases would have to listen and obey. So great, great faith is tied to what just listening. The Lord says it, do it. So we need to be people of great faith. Lord calls us to be peacemakers. We must do that. Don't wait for a special invitation. If you need a special invitation, I'm giving it to you today. So you have no other further excuses. Right? The Lord invites you, commands you to become a peacemaker for his glory and for uh, the good of those around you. So be a faithful slave. Have that slave's mindset. In other words, you might think about, well, this is really awkward. This is really difficult. Yes, I know. It can be difficult. Often is. It can be very awkward. But you've been commanded to do it. So ask the Lord for strength, courage, wisdom, and move forward and do it for his glory. So you must, you must have a, a slave's mindset. The fourth characteristic I want to bring to your attention to be a peacemaker is that you must have a family mindset. And, and, a, and a family mindset. And we've kind of hit this in various verses. But, so I just want to review with you from Matthew 18. If, if, your brother, if, you, sorry, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's Matthew 18, 15. And then the kind of the parallel to that in Luke 17, 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, to for, forgive him. What we're, We've spent a lot of time looking at Matthew uh, 18 and even Luke 17. So I'm not going to rehash that. You can go back to those messages. What I want to say here is that the, the family mindset, you've got to look at people as a brother and sister in Christ. You, you can't ignore them and say, well, that's just who they are. I'm going to let them go in their sin. Um, or if you have conflict, you, you can't just write them off and not talk to them and ignore them. Those are the deeds of the flesh. You have got to care about them. You're called to love one another. And so have that family mindset. You say, no, this is my family. I'm going to care about my family. And I'm going to help my family. Right? And we are really spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are born-again Christian, you have the, the Spirit of God within you, then you have been adopted within the family of, of God. We are spiritual brothers and sisters, and we need to treat each other that way. We need to be willing to help, right? You know, so many times today, you see headlines where somebody is attacked physically, and the people around them, what do they do? They do this. Sorry, I don't usually pull this out. They start filming. Rather than going to the aid of the person, they just start filming. Right? When we see somebody in need, we have to go and involve ourselves. Does it get messy? Absolutely, it gets messy. But you must care about that person and be involved with their lives. The Lord will rebuke us if we do not do these things. I know that because, because Scripture does that. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're just going to read first really eight, eight verses here. Paul believes so strongly that brothers and sisters in Christ are to help each other that, that he rebukes the Corinthian church for ignoring that and going uh, to court against one another, having lawsuits against one another. So that's kind of the context. He says in, in verse 1, 
chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do do you appoint them as judges who have no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this to even to your brethren. So Paul said, yeah, if, there's no one, if there's no one wise among you, it'd be better for you to be defrauded than for you to bring your, your dispute before unbelievers. You'd be better off just being defrauded and being wronged for the glory of God than to bring your dispute before unbelievers. But, but the point that Paul's making, there are wise. There are those who are wise within the church. So these things need to be dealt with within the church. You have conflict with one another. It needs to be dealt with. And Paul severely rebuked the Corinthian church for not doing that. So as a, as a church, we have got to be involved with, with each other's lives and helping one another. One other aspect of the family mindset I want to draw out, and that is the protection of the, un- of, of the unity of that family. And, and here I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Our Lord purchased unity of the church, genuine unity, at a great price. And I'll pick up reading at verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is being performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put it to death, sorry, put to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together a dwelling of God in the spirit. So he's, he, he's saying, look at what he did. He, he purchased that unity at his, at his cost. And if he can bring together the animosity of the Jew and the, and the animosity of the Gentile and bring them under one roof, one building, one church, right? that's what he's done. 
then there, there is an implication for us, and we see that kind of play out in Ephesians 4. So just look at Ephesians 4. And we've seen this passage before, but it's, but it's key to us understanding our role of peacemaking. Ephesians 4, I'll, re, I'll start reading at verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So how many churches are there? Just one. Hey, there are manifestations of that in local churches. I, I get that. But the emphasis is one. So God calls you to love each other as brothers and sisters and to guard the unity that he has purchased at such a high price. Now, the unity he's purchased is ultimate and spiritual. Right? We, can't, we can't do anything about that. We can't contribute to that. And that's a good thing. We'd mess it up. But what the Lord calls us to do is to, to uh, work toward protecting the practical unity. And, and, and how do we guard that practical unity <clears throat> Excuse me. It's by being a peacemaker. It's by being a reconciler, being involved with each other's lives, be caring about one another, so that you go to that person, right? Whether they have an offense against you, whether you see a sid, or perhaps you see a brother or sister, or two two fellow Christians who need help working things out. Paul at times did that, you know. In Philippians, he's saying, "Hey, you know, Philippian church, help these two women out, work work out the issue, right?" So he see so he had to do that. So. Be involved in that way. You know, we guard the unity by helping each other walk holy lives. When that doesn't happen, we get involved with each other's lives. And helping each other even guard our, the doctrine that we believe. So helping each other in that, in that way to, to have good doctrine. Remember Psalm uh, 133.1. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And that good and pleasantness isn't just on, a, on say, the fleshly level, on the horizontal level. It's vertical. It's a form of worship. When brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, it honors the Lord. It is a form of worship um, to Him. God so highly values unity that you must not treat unity as if it's just optional or if it's a, kind of a throwaway or a luxury. Not very important even on the other side of the scales. You must not be indifferent to guarding the unity of the church. Um, God calls you to do this, to walk that path, that path of peacemaking and reconciling. You know, so a family mindset is needed to be a peacemaker. The, the fifth mindset that I want to bring to your attention this morning is a warrior's mindset. A warrior's mindset. You might think, peacemaking? Warrior? Really? You're, you're really drawing those two together? Yes, I am. And I'll show you why. Because it might seem contradictory. But when I say do you have a warrior's mindset, I am saying that you have got to have some fortitude when you go to resolve conflict. Because there are often times when you go to resolve conflict, at least temporarily the conflict might get worse. And you cannot shy away from that. You've got to have courage. And you've got to see that as spiritual warfare. So I'm talking about having a warrior's mindset. I'm not talking about the fleshly battle. I'm talking about the spiritual battle. 
And, and we see this in, and Paul explained this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. That is spiritual warfare. It, it's, it's not the modern concept of the church has of walking around a neighborhood and just praying, right? Praying is a form of spiritual warfare. But here, Paul specifically identifies that, that taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, you are pulling down fortresses of people's minds because they believed wrong things, and you have to pull those down. What do you, the tools you use is the sword, right? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But it is warfare. And so we can't be thinking that, that a, a peacemaker is just is is uh, going to be totally kind of like docile. You've got to have some courage within you as a, as a woman or as a man. Courage and fortitude is needed to, to be a peacemaker. And in fact, I would say true unity is, is built on truth. It's not built on some kind of false compromise or a looking over details. And I just want to bring to your consideration John 17 there, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus prays for our unity, but I want you to see the, the, the connection between unity and sanctification. I'm going to read from verse 17 of John 17. Jesus prays to the Father. He kind of peels back um, the intertrinitarian communication he's had with the Father and allows us to see it because it's written for us. He's, Jesus prays, sanctify them, what? By the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so also I send them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. That is, he's prayed for you and for me because we believed in the apostles' word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There's a profound unity that Jesus, Jesus prays for, but he connects it always with truth. Notice that word sanctifies used so much in that passage. Yet those aren't unrelated ideas. Okay? True unity is built on the truth. Jesus builds unity on the truth. And the reason I mention this with the warrior's mindset is because the world doesn't like what? Truth. They don't like it. So you're, when you're confronting someone's sin, especially if an unbeliever trying to resolve something with an unbeliever, they're not going to like that truth. They're going to rail against the truth because they rail against God. God understands that, that, that truth builds unity. It builds true unity, but it also um, 
destroys, sorry, destroys fake unity. So the world would be, the world would really like the church if we would just stop preaching the truth. The world could be like, really, we could have a wonderful relationship with the world if we just stop preaching the truth. That's what I'm talking about. It's kind of foolish, right? But some churches today are actually doing that is a sad thing. So you cannot compromise truth to obtain peace. So if you have to, if you come to a place, you have to choose between truth and peace. You choose truth because whatever unity you could have otherwise had was not really unity. All it is, the Lord is using truth to to show you that it's really whatever unity you thought you had. It was really disunity. It was it was fake unity. And and just to drive this point home a little bit harder with. Jesus himself said this, surprisingly. The, the, the Lord of peace, the Prince of Peace said this. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus? Yeah, that's Jesus. In fact, he wanted to drive it home twice. So Luke says it a slightly different, different way. Probably do different occasions. Do you think that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, No but division. Really? What is he talking about? He's talking about what the same thing I've been mentioning here. He's going to bring the truth. And the truth is going to bring division. Now it's going to also create true unity. But it's going to bring division. Because truth separates. Who is truly a child of God and who is not. Those who want to obey God and those who don't. So Jesus did not believe in unity at, every, at, at any price. Jesus prefers disunity uh, that, that's built on falsehood than, than um, any kind of unity built on doctrinal error. And he prefers disunity when you're holding the truth than any so-called disunity or uh, any kind of unity based on doctrinal error or compromise. So we must, we must follow our Lord's example in this regard. So you're dealing with someone in your own home that's not holding to truth. You know there's going to be a certain amount of conflict there. Just just expect that because there's truth. They're in a spiritual warfare, right? Be loving and kind in the, in the flesh. In the spirit, you've got to take every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Taking what, take what they're saying and run it through the grid of Scripture. You've got to have a, a mindset of a warrior. In conclusion here, I want to bring to you the, the skill set part. And you've already seen all these. I just want to bring them all together. To be a peacemaker, you must continue to develop the skill set of a peacemaker. So here I'm trying to specifically, intentionally, trying to help you see that these things have to be put into practice. And you have to learn how to use them. Right? Walk in the spirit. First one is walk in the skill sets. The way to summarize this is just all the individual lessons we've already had thus far. Walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk in love, Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walk in humility, Philippians Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Control your anger. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Control your tongue. 
Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Control your criticism. James 4.11, Do not slander one another, brothers. Pursue reconciliation. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins, go to him. If he doesn't listen, go get a helper and go to them. If he, they don't listen to two of you, then you've got to go to the church and you follow that process. Then forgive as God forgives. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. So you've got to learn how to practice these things. Not just remember them. Remembering them as, as say, half the battle or maybe 25% of the battle. Okay? 50 to 75% of the battle is learning how to use them. And you're not going to do that perfectly. You're going to want to love. You're, want to, you're going to want to forgive as God forgives. Right? But you're going to fail in that. You're going to realize that. And you're going to have to repent of that. And, and learn and grow and strengthen. And continue to grow in these skills. God wants you to be growing spiritually in each of these peacemaking skills. So to be a peacemaker, you have to have a kingdom mindset a farmer's mindset, a slave's mindset, a family's mindset, and a warrior's mindset. And, and with these things all combined together, right? they're not independent, they are together, then working to build the skills that you need to be a, a master peacemaker, so to speak. And I don't mean master in the sense you're in charge, but just that you're, you're, you're like really skilled at it. And people will like come to you, hey, will you help me? I have this conflict with my, with my brother and I really, I really want your help. Right? So it's not that we want to be good at conflict. We want to be good at peacemaking. Conflict's already there. So let's get good at being the peacemakers God calls us to be. And in your families. I mean, this applies to the church level, but think about your families. Your husbands and wives. There's lots of opportunities to apply these. And, and if, you need, if you need help, ask for help. Sometimes in a, in a solid church, a, a church that's solid theologically, you look at everybody else and say, oh, man, they got their lives together. Their marriage isn't like mine. I'm, I just, I'm just so messed. I'm just so embarrassed. I, I just thought I, I couldn't ask for help. No, you must. You must. Because you've believed a lie. Every one of us in this room struggles with sin. Different kinds of sin. But we're, we're all... We're, all struggling with sin. We're in different places in spiritual maturity, and that's a good thing because we want the more mature to help the less mature. We don't all want to be in the same place. That's not a bad thing. That's a positive thing. Okay? But be humble and ask for the help that you need. Right? Siblings, think about how to, how to apply this. With brothers and sisters, there's lots of conflict within a family. It could, be some, it could be like small nitpicky stuff. But God even cares about that small nitpicky stuff. Like, think about how you can apply this for the glory of God, being a peacemaker in your family. Okay? So think through how to practice and grow in these things for the, for the glory of God, the good of your family and the good of the church. Ultimately, God gets the glory. Carry out these things. Do these things. Be a doer of the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for giving us your word and what a challenge it is to hear these things. Lord, knowing that we have failed you many times. Uh, Lord, that we, we've not been the, the peacemakers you have called us to be. And so we confess that to you. And Lord, knowing that you care for us, that you'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, strip everything away from us that is 
an impediment to being a peacemaker. Change our mindset, Lord God, that we would look at these things from your point of view and that we would obey you as our Lord and as our God. Lord, we do just ask for your help to implement these things and to practice them, not just to hear them one day and forget them about another, but to put them into practice in our everyday lives. Holy Spirit, please help us. We need your empowerment. We need your help. You, you are the God who brings peace, and you bring that peace in our lives and, and make us a more effective peacemaker in our relationships with others.